So we are, oops, rewriting. Okay, we are back, uh, making our way through the Bible, making our way through these stories in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and if you have been following along in the Jesus Storybook Bible, we are currently at the story of Jonah. Uh, He's representative of this section in the Jesus Storybook Bible about God's messengers. Um, I have to to tell you right now, kids, uh, and, you know, kids and adults alike, if if you were hoping for a sermon kind of on Jonah being swallowed up by the big fish, I have to disappoint you. That's not what we're going to talk about. Um, You can always read that story in the Bible. I encourage you to do that, or maybe read it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. They do a great job of it. We're going to focus on um, this story here of Jonah's interaction with um, with the sailors. And the reason why we're going to do that is because, uh, let me explain it this way. When God called the nation of Israel, he called them uh, to be a nation through whom he was going to have a special relationship so that the rest of the world could see what God is like and see what a relationship with God is supposed to uh, produce in terms of your national life. Let Let me try again. That wasn't very clear. Um, God chose the people of Israel to be a nation through which he was going to show the rest of the world that if we would be in relationship with God, live our lives according to his way, worship him above all else, and uh, serve him, it would lead to human flourishing. It would lead to the very utopia that John Lennon, whose uh, death we uh, remembered this week again when he wrote, Imagine, you know that great song, Imagine There's No Heaven, No Sea Above, No Hell Below Us, all that kind of stuff. He was imagining a utopia, a perfect life. Of course, he said that that would happen uh, with no God. The Bible says that if we were to pray the prayer that Jesus prayed, the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and if that were to actually happen, life on earth would be perfect and glorious. And the people of Israel were supposed to be a picture of that to the world, so that the nations would want to know more about this God and how they can serve Him as well. We've been seeing, as we've been making our way through the Jesus Storybook Bible, we've been seeing that the Israelites were really terrible at fulfilling that role. And so what God did was, was he sent them off into exile. He sent in a nation to to, uh, conquer them, sent them off into exile. And we saw last week that that meant that God was going to use a different means by which to proclaim his glory to the nations. He was going to have faithful believers in the midst of those pagan nations demonstrate what a relationship with God looks like and what this God was like. And that's, that's what we learned last week as Mark walked us through Daniel in the lion's den. That's not the only way that God was going to make himself known to the nations, though. He was also going to send missionaries. He was going to send people like Jonah to proclaim his glory and his majesty and his good news to the nations. Now, Jonah is a pretty lousy missionary, but that is certainly, nevertheless, his job, to be a missionary. And the reason we're going to look at this story is because 
there's tremendous relevance in uh, this story to our situation today because what we see in this interaction between him and the sailors in this passage, we, we get actually a window into the religious climate of our modern world. There are a lot of parallels to how the sailors act and how modern people act in terms of their religious understanding and their religious observance. They are a picture of how religious people today operate. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through this story together and we're going to see very quickly three things. We're going to see, first of all, that all human beings have a religious impulse. Second of all, we're going to see that all human beings have a religious practice. And then we're going to see how all human beings need a religious substitute. We all have an impulse, we all have a practice, and we all need a substitute. Because the thesis here is this. The natural human being is religious. So we are by nature religious, but the way that we practice that religion is through fear. The gospel, however, upends that and teaches us to practice our faith through love. That's where we're going, okay? So let's have a look. Now, before we start uh, into the text, uh, just a very quick background on Jonah, who was this guy. It's a little confusing because the Jesus Storybook Bible puts Daniel before Jonah, but chronologically, Jonah happens before Daniel. Daniel is during the time of exile. The story of Jonah is in the time of the divided kingdom. So Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during the, the reign of a guy named Jeroboam II, so around 793 to 753 BC, okay? And during this time, the Assyrian Empire is threatening the northern border and the eastern border of this nation of Israel. And the Assyrians were a huge nation and an absolutely ruthless nation. And at one point, they eventually do conquer the nation of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel who get taken off into captivity taken off into captivity, and actually get lost, like they disappear in the annals of history, okay? And the capital of the Assyrian Empire was this city, Nineveh. Nineveh was on the eastern bank of the Tigris River, where uh, today stands the Iraqi city of Mosul, okay? And it was the heart of this Assyrian Empire. And it was a big city, over 100,000 people lived there. And it was a ruthless city, it was a nasty city. These people were the sworn hated enemies of the Israelites. And God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to proclaim my salvation to those wicked, wicked, horrible, filthy people called the Assyrians. And Jonah says, nuh-uh. I ain't doing it. I don't want to see those Ninevites saved. They're slime. They don't deserve your grace, God. So when God says, go east, young man, Jonah says, forget about it. And he hops on a ship at Joppa, and he takes off westward over the Mediterranean Sea to go to a Spanish city called Tarshish. And that's where we pick up the story. Okay? So, first point in the story all human beings have a religious impulse. I'm not saying, by the way, that all human beings are religious. I'm saying that we all have a religious impulse, we all have a sense of divine, of the divine, as Cal, John Calvin put it, and that impulse 
will be awakened at some point in our lives. So how does that happen in this story? Jonah gets on the ship, he goes downstairs into the belly of this ship somewhere, and he falls asleep. And we read in verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Literally, it says the Lord hurled a storm. Think of like a fastball pitcher, you know, a Alder Adraldus Adraldus Chapman, I forget, I don't know how to say his first name very well. He's the hardest thrower in the in the uh, major leagues right now. He can throw a fastball like 105 miles an hour. Imagine that, like God takes this storm and he fires it at this ship. And interestingly enough, scholars say that the language, the way it's constructed, it's it's to make us understand that this storm is a localized storm. It's not like a massive hurricane comes in over the whole Mediterranean Sea. No, this is, this is a storm that is targeted at this ship, and it's a massive storm. It is a huge storm. Those of you who are old enough to, to watch the movie A Perfect Storm, is there anybody here who saw the movie The Perfect Storm? Okay, even some younger people saw it. Solid. I mean, COVID, you'll watch anything, right? Because, you know, you just need to fill your time. I get it. Anyhow, this movie's from the 90s, I think. And it tells the story of a eastern shipping, uh, um, fishing boat going out uh, to catch swordfish uh, somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, despite the fact that all the weather channels are talking about the confluence of these three systems that are going to create an unbelievable storm. Anyhow, they go out in it, and it's an unbelievable storm, and the waves are massive, and the wind is thrashing, and the rain is pouring down, and it's absolutely terrifying, and that's precisely what these sailors experience, because these are big sea sailors. These are are experienced seamen. These are are tough old salty dogs, right? I don't know if you've ever watched like uh, The Biggest Catch or something like that. These are tough guys, all right, like that, and it says that they are completely terrified They think they're dead. And so what do they do? Verse 5 says, they cry out to their gods. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own god and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. They're absolutely terrified and they cry out to their gods. This should not surprise us, okay? Because the truth is that human beings, when we face the storms of life, when our physical lives are threatened or when something we love dearly like a family member is threatened by an illness or when we are terrified because our business is uh, about to fall apart or we're going to lose our job or whatever we experience these kinds of of things what what those things do is what these stressors do is they reveal the truth about us These sailors were not particularly religious. They weren't particularly devout, but when the storm hit, it's like an involuntary reflex. They they realize their helplessness, they realize their need, and they, they cry out to God. And what it shows is, is that human beings by nature, we 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 know that God is there, and we know that we really desperately need this God who is there. Trouble shows us that we are religious at the core. Now, a skeptic will say to you, and to me, of course, well, you know, look, what you're going through when you have these moments of panic and fear and terror, what's really going on is is you're you're having an irrational moment where you lose control. 
And because you're panicked, you just, you'll just do anything. Like, you'll do crazy things like pray, even though God doesn't exist. And it doesn't prove that God exists. Mark Twain, for example, who was a very uh, outspoken atheist while he was alive, he admits that when he had a loved one very close to him that was dying, and it looked like they were, there was nothing the doctors could do for them, he said he prayed, he prayed hard, he prayed like a dog, even though he knew deep down in his soul that there was no God and God didn't exist. Now, I'm not actually saying that the fact that this is what we do in times of trouble proves that God exists. What I'm saying is, is that it proves that real, consistent skeptics don't exist. Because when the storm hits, the truth comes out that we are not confident, that we are not self Uh, self-assured, that we are not able to handle the difficulties of life, that we are actually helpless and we need someone outside of us to step in and do something for us. We know that deep in ourselves and we become religious. We reach out to a higher power out of hope and, and we reach out to a God that we suspect exists. Like, people don't pray to Santa Claus when they're in trouble. They don't pray to Richard Dawkins' spaghetti monster when they're in trouble. They don't cry out to the Easter bunny when they're in need. No, they cry out to this God, this supernatural being that they, that they sort of have this intuitive knowledge about who is absolute and, and all-powerful and who is able to do something. That's the one they cry out to, the one that they hope that is there because we all have this natural religious impulse. Now, we all cry out, but what does it look like? What is, why do we cry out, and, and what does it look like? This is point two, the religious practice. As I mentioned, these sailors were probably not particularly devout religious people, but they pray. And it says that they each pray to their own God. You notice that? I did. And that's because they're polytheists. And These ships would be made up of people from all different ethnic backgrounds, okay? So they came from all different places and all different cultures and they all had their own histories and they prayed to their own gods because they believed that there were all kinds of gods in the world and those gods had different jurisdictions and powers over different things and and so they prayed out to them kind of trying to hedge their bets, you know, and cover all their bases so that maybe they'll hit the the god that actually can do something. That's why they say to Jonah as well in verse 6, it says, Um, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we will not perish. They're getting him on it as well. Now notice why they're praying. They're praying because they're absolutely terrified that they're going to die, right? So they're afraid, there's fear. But it says, um, in verse 6, it says, maybe he will take notice of us. Other uh, translations say, maybe he will give a thought to us. And, and here's the principle, okay? The core principle of religious thinking is this. If we can get God, God's attention, if we can do what God wants us to do so that he notices us, so that he, he, uh, he 
out of the sea of humanity, uh, realizes that we're devout and that we have taken notice of him and that we have done the things that he wants to us, well, then maybe he'll take notice of us as well. If we do what they want us to do, then maybe they'll do what we want them to do. It's essentially an economic kind of business relationship, or you could say it's a, a quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. In verse 11, they say to Jonah, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? What must we do to appease your God, essentially, is what they're asking. And this is instinctive in all of us. When we come to, when we come to the place of need, when we realize that we're not in control of our world, and we, are, we, we do cry out to the higher power, we instinctively think that the way that we are supposed to be in relationship with that higher power is by doing what they want us to do in order to get them to do what we want them to do. And you see this all the time. You see it all the time. Someone enters into a crisis in their lives and they think to themselves, I got to get right with God. This is a wake-up call. And we use that language all the time, right? This is a wake-up call. I need to get right with God. And so they become religious and maybe they start attending church and they start praying and they start doing religious stuff and they may even go as far and as crazy as to actually give money to a Christian uh, uh, organization like the church or another one. But why? Why are they doing it? Because they're afraid. See, these men, they fear death that was they were afraid of at first. And then when they started talking to Jonah and they discovered that Jonah said, hey, this is all my fault, now they're afraid of God. <laughs> and they're, fear, they're fearful of offending this God. Listen to verse 14. They cry out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you please. Don't blame us for this. You put us in this situation, we're just doing the best that we, we can, and we hope that you will accept and receive our sacrifice. And you know, that is precisely how, how the mind works, the religious mind works in our modern context, including, um, including the secular mind. They just don't use the same language. So it's interesting, when you watch TV shows or you watch movies, um, at some point, let's say something bad happens to a character. And, you, and oftentimes you'll hear them say, well, the universe must be mad at us. Right? Or the universe is trying to tell us something. Or the universe is, is getting us back for something. It's the principle of karma that you find very prevalent in Eastern religions, right? And, and this, is, this is a practice, friends, that comes out of this religious impulse that we all have because the de default mode of the human heart is to want to manipulate God. Not as though He's a peer on our level. I'm not saying you manipulate God as in like you mess with your friends kind of thing. You understand that God is great and He can do things that you can't do. But you still try to manipulate Him in the sense that you're, you're trying to get Him to meet your needs, to, to fulfill your agenda, to, to get done the thing that you want to get done. But what that means then is that you're instinctually 
practicing or basing your relationship with God and practicing that relationship with God on performance and achievement. See, the heart of your religion is in fact fear rather than love because you you spend all your time thinking about, well, what happens if I screw up? What if I fall out of favor of this God that I'm trying to please and trying to appease? Do you notice that this whole story is all about fear, hey? It runs as a, as a thread through the entire story. And, and that's because the religions of the world or the man-made religions or the religions that we produce out of our religious impulse, they're always based upon fear. I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about that in the, in the podcast. So if you're curious about what I'm getting at there, I can't go in more depth into it right now, but you can listen to the podcast this week and you can find out more. Now, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like a lousy way to live? If you're going to be a religious person, if you're going to have a relationship with God, if it's going to be based upon fear, doesn't that sound like the pits? I mean, the ramifications of it are, are, are deep and profound, and they go all over the place, uh, and they're really, really bad. And again, go to the podcast if you want to know more about that. Let me just assure you, you don't want your relationship with God to be based upon fear. You don't want to be constantly worrying whether you're in his good, good graces, so to speak, or not, right? Wondering if God loves you, if God... You want to break out of that. Well, how do you break out of that? Well, if it's a natural religious impulse and it's a natural practice, then the answer to the problem cannot be natural. It has to be unnatural. It has to be supernatural. Uh, we need a religious substitute. That's point three. These sailors, they go, to, they go to Jonah and they say, what do we have to do to be saved? And in verse 12, he says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it'll become calm. This is my fault. Dump me into the water, your problems will go away. And what's interesting is, is that the, the, the pagans, these terrible pagans, so-called, at first, they refuse to do it. They won't. They start dumping off their, uh, their, their luggage and, and their supplies and all that kind of stuff, trying to make them land. They're trying to avoid making this sacrifice and putting Jonah to death. They won't do it. And that's such a, a, a rebuke, in a sense, to the, to the religious folks like Jonah, who was, when he got on the boat, he just went downstairs and went to sleep and wasn't worried about anybody. He had to be awakened by the captain of the ship before he even realized that there was a problem. But anyhow, they, they realized that... Uh, that this isn't going to work, and they finally give in when they see there's no other way, and so they toss Jonah into the water, they toss him overboard, and the storm dies, and the sea becomes calm. And you know how after a storm, the sea continues to rage, like the waves are huge? You, you know, talk to surfers, right? They love big storms because when the storm goes through, they go surfing on the huge waves that follow the storm. That's not what happened here. What happened here is, is as soon as Jonah hit the water, the, the skies cleared and the water became like glass. And it says in verse 16, at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. Now this is interesting. They greatly feared the Lord. Look, before the storm, or, or actually before the storm calmed down, they were afraid of God because of the storm. Now the storm is gone, so their reason to fear is gone 
but it says that they greatly feared the Lord. It sounds, in fact, like they're in some ways more afraid of God now than they were before. What in the world is going on? And here's what's going on. Jonah said, you're not going to die for me. I'm going to die for you. And he went to death for them. And God accepted his sacrifice. See, he was a willing substitute. And when he gave himself up for them, God accepted that sacrifice and the seas were calmed and the storm ceased and these, so, these, these sailors stood in awe of God's acceptance of this sacrifice on their behalf. See, before they had this religion of fear, they said, I'll do, it, I'll, I'll do whatever you want, just, just, just save my life. And then as soon as God saved their life, what should they have done? They should have said, thank you very much, and carried on on their way. The crisis is over. Right? But the sailors stood in awe of the fact that God would forgive the many through the sacrifice of the one. And so when it says here that they greatly feared the Lord, it's not saying that they were more terrified of Him and more afraid of Him and His judgment. No, it's the kind of fear that the psalmist talked about in Psalm 130 where it said, Therefore, with you there is, or, with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. In other words, what they're looking at is they're looking at the amazing, forgiving nature of God. And in verse 16, it says that the trouble has passed, the storm is over, over and they have no selfish motivation left to have any relationship with this God, but what happens? They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows to Him. They made vows to Him. They said, I'm following you. I'm giving my life to you. I'm obeying you. There's no more conditions. There's no more storm. They have no reason to be afraid and say, I'll do whatever it takes anymore. But now that the storm is over and now that they're free, now that they've been rescued by God's free grace, they are saying, there's no conditions. There's no demands. There's no requirements from me. There's no terms. I am yours. Do with me as you will. Their fear, you see, was transformed it says here that they greatly feared the Lord, but a better way of understanding it is that they were lost in awe and wonder and love and praise of this God. So what about you? How do you understand your relationship with Jesus? There... there there's a place in Matthew chapter 12 where people come to Jesus and they want a sign, okay? They want a sign. They say, do a miracle and show us who you are. And Jesus says this, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying, look, a greater Jonah has come. Jonah risked his life for the sailors. When he got dumped into the ocean, he thought he was as good as dead, but he survived, didn't he? 
But Jesus is saying that I am going to give my life entirely for you. The only storm that can really do anything to you, that can finally take you, the only crisis, the only trauma that really ultimately matters, that is the storm of death and the judgment of God for sin, Jesus says, I am taking that for you. I am the ultimate willing substitute. Do you see how this story whispers the name of Jesus? And again, you have this ridiculously, what's the word, pathetic type of Christ. You have a guy named Jonah who didn't want to go and go to Nineveh in the first place, and so he tries to run away. God has to drag him back by having a fish swallow him and then puke him up on the shore when it's time for him to finally go. And when he does go, Jonah, this is the the sermon that Jonah preaches to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh, 40 more days and Jonah will be overturned. It's your classic fire and brimstone sermon. Turn or burn, baby. And he hopes, in fact, that they won't. Because when he's done his little missionary trip, he goes outside the city, he goes up on a high, high hill, and he waits for God to smoke him. He's looking at his watch, and he's going, yeah, that's right, man, when 40 days hits, the fire's going to come, and you guys are going to get it. And then when God saves this people and doesn't judge them and doesn't destroy them in their sin, you know what Jonah does? He says to God, I'm angry enough to die. And yet, this poor prophet nevertheless was a willing substitute that pointed to the ultimate substitute, our Savior who took the judgment that Nineveh deserved and frankly that Jonah deserved because he was engulfed by the ultimate perfect storm of God's justice so that you and I, like those sailors, could experience calm even in the midst of the storms of our lives. Let me close this way. There's three kinds of people here or out there in interweb world there's three kinds of people around, basically. We've got, we've got those who are like the sailors in that they are crying out to the wrong gods, to the, to the no-god gods, the gods that don't exist. And they are looking for salvation in all kinds of wrong places. They're looking for it in sex. They're looking for it in, a, in, in relationships. They're looking for it in money. They're looking for it in their reputation. They're looking for it in their children. They're looking for it in their grades. They're looking for it in their jobs. They're looking for it in anything but the one place they should be looking. And those things are going down with the ship, and they're not saving you. And I just appeal to you, look to the one who can save, the one who did save. Look to Jesus. But then there's other people here. You're in church, and you come to church regularly, and you watch church regularly or whatever, but you're like the sailors in that your relationship with God is really a religion of fear. 
my family uh, uses a devotional that we've been using for a long time. It's called Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman. It's awesome, especially for teenagers. Buy it, use it. We just use it during the school year. We've gone through it probably two or three times, we're, or we're in our third time. There's a great one where he, he, he actually talks about how do you think of Jesus? When you think of Jesus, how do you picture him in your mind, your relationship with him? Do you, do you picture him as having his arms wide open, ready to receive you as you run into his unconditional loving arms? Do you, do you picture him sitting down and you're like those little children in, in the Gospels who came to him to be blessed and, and you're just jumping into his lap because you know that he delights in you? Are, you? are you picturing him sort of looking over his shoulder and calling you to follow him and saying, let's go, and you want to go wherever he wants to lead you because you have pu- fully put your trust in him? Or are you like this? And in this devotional, the author, he, he suspects that a lot of us are kind of like this. You picture Jesus not, not embracing you, but not leading you. He's kind of half turned away from you. And he's looking over his shoulder at you with kind of a look of disappointment. Maybe his arms are crossed. And he's kind of disappointed. And that's because you think that your relationship with him is dependent upon how good you're doing. How well am I practicing my Christian faith? And you're forgetting that God, that Jesus' relationship to you is based not on how well you practice the Christian faith, but whether you're just willing to admit that you can't practice the Christian faith the way you should. that he delights in you despite your failures and despite your shortcomings. And when, when you look at him, see him dying on the cross for you, and that melts your heart, then your religion of fear turns into a religion of love. And you say, I will follow you wherever I go. I will make sacrifices and I will make vows simply because of who you are. And then the the third kind of person is the rest of us who are still scared. And to some degree, we all are. There's a lot of reasons to be scared. You're scared of the pandemic. You're scared of the uncertain future. You're scared of the vaccine and whether or not you should take it. You're scared, 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 scared. We're scared. We don't have to be scared, friends. You may have to go through a storm but your storm that you face, the storm that I face, the storm that the world is facing right now, we don't face it as people who have no hope because we believe in a Jesus who, is, who promised the sign of Jonah. And what is, the, what is the end of the story of Well, the end of the story. What is the end of the sign of Jonah? Jonah comes back to life. Jonah is resurrected. Jonah is spit up by that fish. But the true Jonah, our Savior Jesus, he walked out of that grave. He walked out of that grave. Death could not hold him. Satan could not bind him. He is victorious over your sin and over death and over hell and over the enemy. And we have nothing, nothing to fear.
Every story whispers his name. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this story whispers the name of Jesus, our Savior, and we pray that we will love him and follow him and entrust ourselves to him entirely and walk in faith before him for his glory and for the benefit of the world. These Ninevites heard the gospel from a lousy missionary but they heard it. And may we be used by you to spread the fame of your name the world over. In Jesus we pray. Amen.